So welcome back, listeners. I'm Lee. And I'm Amaya. And you are listening to From South. Mother and child, come with me. Sisters young and old, now we see. Let's all come together. Mm-hmm. Come together. here to talk about the book that our book club just got finished reading. For those of you who may be just uh, checking our podcast for the first time, we talk about books that Amaya and I are reading in our feminist book club. And we've been in a sort of two-part series reading books about motherhood. And the first book that we read was Mother Nature, Maternal Instincts, and How They Shape the Human Species. By Sarah Blaffer Hardy. Yes. Thank you, Amaya. This is a pretty big book. Thankfully, we had the whole summer to read this book because it's over 500 pages. And we didn't realize how big this book was when we were voting on it for our book club. And not everybody actually made it through. I think there's only two people that actually read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Most people just maybe looked at how big it was and then gave up already. But having said that, this book has actually turned out to be really good, and I thought it was a great one to start off a series discussing motherhood because it looks at motherhood from a different perspective. Sarah Hardy is an anthropologist. She's an evolutionist, and so she takes a look at motherhood through those lenses and really looks at nature for her answers and some of the, to some of the questions that she's asking in this book, which are really profound. But broadly speaking, this book is about what it means to be a mother and how to deal with an infant's needs and the needs or ambitions of the mother. So about sort of balancing both of those things. This book is also focuses on the active role of mothers in the evolutionary process. So she's really debunking and challenging the Victorian evolutionist theories that were um, that were biased. Well, really, all, a lot of scientific theories that were biased, and one of those placing mothers in this nurturing and passive role first rather than an active role. So. To say that differently, Hardy is really looking at these uh, old theories, these old evolutionist theories that consider mothers to be passive and less important in the evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she's saying, no, mothers are actually very active and important in the process. She also looks at female sexuality in those contexts as well. She looks at maternal instincts and really challenges the essentialist ideas about maternal instincts. She looks at infant needs, father's roles in all of this. But most importantly, I think, and probably what I would say is the biggest point that I took away from this book is that she talks about female choice and reproductive rights. She says that women are constantly making choices and constantly making trade-offs and managing their own reproduction 
and are way more active in all of that than evolutionists and scientists have given them credit for. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that she talks about is communal support. She talks about allo mothers and their role in, um, in motherhood as well. Everything is covered in this book. It is, it is a Bible for, I think, the feminist, for feminist studies. It's a Bible for feminist studies, really. It, um, it covers so much. And even as I was reviewing for the podcast, I was reading over the first, you know, 150, 200 pages. And there is so much there. There is just so much there that I didn't get the first time around. It's dense. It's so dense and good, really. And I was starting to read it again, getting lost, thinking, oh, my gosh, it's just getting good. There's so many layers. I didn't see this before. She speaks a lot about Darwin and another evolutionist, Spencer. I'm not familiar with him, but Darwin, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know him? I feel like I'm fumbling over the science. I know, there's a lot in here. Okay, uh, maybe we we should just say, Amaya and I are not scientists. No, we're not scientists. Uh, We are, this is not our field. So (laughs) some of the language is a little bit uncomfortable, uh, but we're going to do our best. You don't need to be a scientist (laughs) to understand that these men, these early scientists, these evolutionists, they believed that women were really only equipped to breed and nurture young. And men excelled at everything else. Women had one focus. They were the inferior sex, right? They were less intelligent, they were less capable, and they had one purpose, which was to breed. And that was clear at that time. That's what science believed. And so, of course, for a very long time, they thought it was men who were directing evolution, that women were just the holders Of course, now we understand that the egg is a complex organism and that rather than being penetrated by the sperm, the egg actually engulfs the sperm, takes it in, and selects which sperm to take in, right? So not only culturally, and we'll talk about this later, but biologically, females are very much involved in directing evolution. They aren't passive bystanders. Right. I thought it was really fascinating when she talks about how females are basically managers of the species as a whole. And she really looks to primates and, well, all all different animals, but she uh, gives examples of how different primates uh, will alter their ovulation based on whether or not to support a more dominant female and her offspring and how you know female bees queen bees will make choices about whether or not to produce male or female bees based on the needs of the hive and balancing the system and the ratio between males and females and so it just she just shows over and over again how all of these different females and different species across the board are making choices and directing um, directing whether or not babies are born, how they're born, how they survive, whether or not they're going to be males or females and different things like that. Mm-hmm. So. Right. And then, of course, in primates, 
alpha females are very much in charge of directing the births in their community, right? So not just their own, but the births in their community. So again and again, like you're saying, yes, it is shown that women are very much in direct control of evolution. So one of the questions I think that she really raises in the beginning when she's writing her preface and discussing why she wrote this book in the first place is that she was really dealing with her desire to be a mother and her, of course, ambition in her field of study, but also her sexuality. You know, she says that she had a lot of strong sexual feelings, and during that time period, those kinds of uh, sexual feelings were not really validated or in society, I guess, for women. So, and I think that for her, looking at the history of men trying to figure out female sexuality and doing a pretty poor job at it, she just really you wanted to ask these questions about female sexuality and female sexuality as it's always been sort of juxtaposed against motherhood, where she says, in fact, female sexuality and motherhood are very much connected and women's uh, sexuality is a part of this whole managerial role that they play in determining who they mate with, where they stand in the hierarchy of the, the, the community how they spread their births out so that they can be more successful with keeping the infant alive. Within that, sexuality plays a really big role. And she talks a lot about this particular, uh, was it a chimp or an ape in one of the primate species? Flo? Was it Flo? Flo is uh, one of the apes that she mentions when she's talking about hierarchy and how Flo was an alpha male and had a lot of support in her hierarchy because she had mm-hmm. she was up higher in status. But she also talks about another one who has a lot of sexual partners and how a lot of different primates will have a lot of sexual partners, especially and, and may even have sexual partners outside of their own little tribe, especially if they're competing maybe with another female or if they don't have support or they're just making these choices based on the resources that they have available. So it's adaptive that female primates would have multiple partners, would be promiscuous, so that male primates don't exactly know if that baby is theirs or not. So they're less likely to actually engage in infanticide. So it's, it's to the female's benefit if she engages in intimacy, sexual activity with many male primates and even outside of her community in order to protect her young. Yeah, that's right. That was a really great point that she makes. Right. Which, you know, you'd think a woman going, a woman, (laughs) you'd think a female going outside of the community would be dangerous because if she had young sired by an outsider, certainly that young primate would be killed by the males in her community. But if she's promiscuous with many males who could be potential fathers, then those males are less likely to actually kill her young. Right, because if she makes the point that if the males suspect that the child could be theirs, they will protect it and not kill it. Right. So, in a so they're sense never really certain, right. but so long as they are 
sort of certain or suspect that that's a possibility. Right. And so her promiscuity is actually adaptive. It's her choice. It's a clever way for her to ensure the longevity of her children. And this is interesting, too, in matrilineal cultures, which Hardy talks about in her book as well. There's this matrilineal culture called Canela in the Amazon. And the women in this culture, in this community, they have a primary husband and a secondary husband. And it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly accepted that the welfare of the children is more important than chastity of the woman, right? That a woman, because it's known that children need to be cared by many. And a woman that has more support around her, more help, is more likely to have children that thrive and survive. Whereas in the patrilineal cultures, the patriarchal cultures, it's more about men controlling women's sexuality and resources to the women so that the women won't go off and have you know, these promiscuous experiences like they had in the past for various reasons, for reasons that are very adaptive and responsible for a woman who's raising children. I agree with her because our culture, of course, and religion as well, plays a huge role in deeming female sexuality promiscuous and sinful and on and on and on. So it's interesting because we've been basically through many different reasons that I just mentioned, we've been basically sort of stripped of our natural abilities and our rights to really have full control over our reproduction. And, you know, our society and culture isn't really designed for one really important aspect of all of this that she discusses, in, and that is the community, the Allo Mothers, the community of support. This idea that motherhood requires resources and community, and that we don't really have that, you know, and that any attempt that we, I think, that females have had over the centuries has been taken away from them systematically. And so now we're left with this privatization of our own, our children and daycare systems. This is about as much as we are giving mothers, but we don't have a sense of community when it comes to mothering our children in Every, everyone else's children. We just don't have that community. We don't have those ally mothers. Because I guess let's take a few steps back. Hardy really describes ally mothering as anyone who would give support to the infant outside of the mother. So that would be other females, young females who are not yet ready to have children but can still take on the responsibility, uh, sisters and aunts, things like that or grandmothers who are past their uh, time for having children and are still capable and able bodies. And then, of course, fathers could be considered aloe mothers. So in our culture, we have, if you're, like I said, if women are fortunate, they have mothers. And maybe they might have some sisters, br brothers, or close family that can help. But the idea that anyone outside of our of our primary family system would help us raise our children is 
just not the reality. So that's why we have so many women who are left feeling very isolated and alone and uh, struggling to figure out how to take care of an infant's simple basic needs, but also their own needs on top of an infant's needs. And it's very overwhelming. Right. And given the fact that living in single family homes, fragmented, disconnected from our families of origin, most of us, that we don't have that support. And then divorce rates are high. There's lots of single parents. And there's alum- a lot of single mothers. I'd like to find uh, some statistics on how many uh, single parents are actually single mothers. Lots of single mothers, right? And it's well documented, well documented that the kids suffer in a single parent home, in a fatherless home. Well, that's an interesting statement to make that kids actually suffer because she, I mean she definitely talks about it and well gives lots of yes. statistics and I I believe that to be the case. It's just like a kid growing up without community, right? I mean it's the same thing. It is, but I I hate to say that kids suffer across the board because I don't think that kids suffer across the board and I think that you have to be careful to say that uh, a single mother or a single family home without a father will create a suffering child because that puts a lot of anxiety on the single mother that's raising that child. And if she gets that message told to her over and over again, she will inevitably begin to feel like she is not enough and seek okay. somebody else. So that's kind I of I get like what you're saying, but I, I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything here. I'm trying to be honest. And this is an important fact to understand because... In choice, in a choice that a woman has about her future, if she's naive to think that she can raise a child by herself and be a single mom and, you know, take care of her life and her child's without help, she's just that. She's naive. There are enough studies that show that, you know, single parent homes have kids that are disadvantaged. I mean, that that's c- well accepted, and I think it's a real important fact to understand, especially when women are looking at their lives and their future, and if they have the choice to keep or not keep the child, let's look at this. Let's seriously look at this. Granted, not every woman has that choice because her husband leaves her after she's already had the children. She has chances for success. But in terms of a woman, a young woman making a choice about her future, she needs to look at the statistics and realize that in order for children to survive, they need support and they need resources. And a single mother is going to have a hard time with that in her life. Not impossible, but the odds are not... In her favor. It's so funny as you keep saying this over and over again, this this word female choice. And if a woman is going to look ahead at her future and make these choices about whether or not she's going to have children. I mean, this is kind of the key issue here is how much choice do women believe that they have? How much, how many decisions do women make that aren't really in her best interest or that she maybe at the time doesn't feel like she really has very much control over. And I think we even have to go a step further and look at the institution of marriage and why so many young women and men fall into these marriages very early on with 
all kinds of expectations and then end up divorced and then end up, you know, with one of the uh, one or the other being the primary caregiver for the children. And I think that speaking from experience, coming all out of the other end of that, I look back and think I had choice, but I didn't feel like I had choice. And I don't know how to say that. I don't know what that's about, but it's interesting because female choice implies that someone is emotionally responsible enough to make a responsible decision and to be able to look that far ahead. And there are so many tools missing in young people's tool belts or toolkits or whatever you want to say that. I don't know that they're capable. I don't know that I was capable when I was really young to say, I'm not going to have all the resources. I'm probably going to get a divorce and I'm going to be left with two kids to raise on my own and I'm not going to have enough resources to do so. Like I didn't look ahead and think that. Yeah. Well, I didn't know at 36, you know, when I was pregnant, that as a single mother, I would be struggling to care for a child. I thought, well, I'm pregnant, you know, like this is, this is supposed to happen. And especially in here, here in the South, <laughs> It's, it's accepted, you know, it's, it's, it's expected, especially here in the South, it's expected that if you're pregnant, you're going to keep the child, right? Abortion isn't commonly accepted here. Yeah, and you said another really interesting point that I think is really tied into all of that, that this is supposed to happen. So we are told this message is repeated to, I think, most women in general, but definitely women raised in a very predominantly Christian religious community, that this is God's gift to you. And even if you don't have all the resources, somehow or another, he will help you along and give you everything that you need, and it will be good, and everything's going to work out. And so we just, we just keep on going. We just keep looking ahead, saying, okay, well, obviously, this baby in my belly was meant to be here. And so I will be provided for. And again, going back to choice, the choice is muffled in there. It's very confusing. What choice do I have if it's divinely implanted into my stomach? (laughs) You know, in some sort of destiny or fate kind of way. Like, where does my choice then fall in that whole situation? Right. And then, of course, if there aren't very many options for you to take care of that choice in another way. Lack of abortion clinics, lack of education, lack of resources, then the choice is even diminished further. Right. So that's where I think in so many cases we end up with women primarily, but even men, parents struggling in single family homes and children struggling and being, you know, being disadvantaged because of the parent having to play so many different roles in order to fulfill the child's needs and their own needs. Right. And so that coming back to community, where does that put community in all of this? Well, what support system do these people have? I mean, we have welfare systems. I remember being told many times, 
it takes a village to raise a child, but I looked around when I was raising my two kids, primarily by myself, uh, where is everybody? I don't see a village. Every time I needed help, really, really needed help, the only person that I could really rely on was my own mother because everybody else was too busy doing their own thing. They had all their own responsibilities or they, they couldn't follow through or whatever. It was too much. So this idea that there's a community out there to help you, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's fraught with all kinds of... Um, gray areas, all kinds of confusion and difficulties. I mean, one of those is even being able to ask for help. I remember feeling, and I know other people have talked about feeling, like they couldn't ask for help because they didn't want to, I didn't want to be a burden on someone else, or I was embarrassed that I was struggling and needed the help, you know, so there's all of these different reasons. I mean, I haven't ever even applied for uh, food stamps because I just I, there's something in me that can't do that. I can't ask for that kind of help, even though I probably would qualify for it. So there's always this kind of uh, pride, personal ownership. It's pride. It's not communal thinking. We don't. We're not. We don't have communal thinking in the brain. And so you it's know, it's not our culture. It's not our culture. It, no. We don't look around and see all of these resources and opportunities. We look around and see isolation and obstacles and doors shutting all over the place and judgment and so on and so and this is part of the resourcing right it's not just money we're talking community support as well and this weighs in heavily to a woman's choice do you have community support do you have a job (laughs) do you have a home do you have babysitters yeah do you have therapy because all that's really important yeah, parents need therapists. <laughs> I really strongly believe that parents need therapists, mm-hmm. uh, especially parents who are struggling. Do they have parent classes for young parents who don't really know a lot about parenting or didn't have really good parents themselves or good role models? They're struggling to just figure out what to do when my child does goes crazy and throws tantrums all night long. What do I do? Or, oh God, I totally freaked out and had a panic attack and did you know something physical to my child that I wish that I wouldn't have and now I don't know how to deal with all of this guilt and move forward like parenting especially young infants and toddlers they really push people to their limits and beyond so like where's the support for the emotional support when things go wrong or get out of hand or when the child is just difficult to deal with I mean, there's just so many different ways in which we need more support and we don't really have it and it comes back to, to money. It does come back to money because maybe there is support in more affluent areas. But I don't know. I, I feel like if you're already struggling with having a job, with having making ends meet, with having somebody else to help you, with being able to afford a babysitter, being able to afford daycare, uh, being able to afford to go back to school so that you can get a better job, like all of these things that a young Uh, mother or even a young father that's left alone to raise a child might be struggling with all of that requires money yeah and I know you're trying to be really fair by continuing to include men I am you know I'm always trying to be fair but let's be honest here there aren't a lot of men no this is a woman's problem in my area who is a (laughs) stay-at-home dad one one man this is a woman's (laughs) problem there is the rare man but really this is a woman's problem and this harks back to the structure the paradigm of patriarchy and controlling women 
right? Controlling women's reproductive choice. Of course, men wouldn't want women to choose to have control over reproduction. Why? Because women with babies are much easier to control. Much easier to control. They're not fighting for power because they're too busy raising the children, right? So, of course men want to control our reproductive rights. Of course men want to control our choice. There's a fight for power here. Yeah, that's a good point because if we're too busy having babies, we're not going to be competing for those jobs. I mean, and, or we might be competing for those jobs and struggling I- along the way and in, in all other areas of our lives. I made sacrifices in my job and in my career, and I'm still making sacrifices, you know? I'm still working part-time because the primary responsibility for the children are with me as I want it to be, and I do get child support, but still I have, I've made sacrifices in my career so that I can still maintain a presence in their life and not be completely exhausted at the end of every day when they get home from school. Those kinds of things are important to me. And I I don't know how women do it. I don't know how women work 40 plus hours a week, mother kids, and somehow another stay sane or rested or any of those things or healthy or any of those things. Warriors. And we keep trying warriors. to we keep trying to lift ourselves up and say, oh, we're super women and we're so we're <laughs> warriors and we're. But the thing is, is that we shouldn't have to be. It's ridiculous that we have to do all the work on our own. We should not have to man up or uh, be able to accomplish more than is humanly possible for one person to do on a daily basis at all like we've gotten used to this we we, it seems like it's okay we're gonna because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make our place in both both places without attacking the actual culture the patriarchy that has made it so divisive in the first place and made it so unbalanced we're still just trying to you know get a foothold in the arena outside of motherhood you know and it's it's interesting because this book is fantastic with bringing in examples across the species to understand what's happening between humans and understand what's happening in patriarchy. You know, looking and you can help me flesh this out a little bit because it's really fascinating, but looking at primates, for example, males in the primate world compete against each other to have access to the females that are ovulating which doesn't happen that often, actually, because primates, female primates will actually carry and care for their young for up to 27 months. So in that time, they're actually not able to get pregnant again, right? So males are competing for the ovulating females. Females have a different way of competing. They have different ambitions. They have different power struggles with the other females, but it's primarily for the raising and the resourcing of the young. So men have been conditioned over a very long period of time to compete for sex, access to sex. Women have been conditioned for a very long period of time to compete for the raising and the welfare of the young. Two different motivations, Hmm. which then 
if you bring it into humans, explains a lot of what's happening that we see in patriarchy. It would make sense in patriarchy for men to try and con control the resources to such an extent that they ha always have access to sex. If women can't manage their lives because they don't have any rights, men have full access to sex all the time, all the time. They don't actually have to, to combat other men for it. <laughs> they just control the woman and lock her in, lock her down, and <laughs> there she is. And she will there she will stay because she doesn't have any other options. No other options. Right. Right, because on a larger scale, men control resources globally. And their priority isn't the rearing of the children. No, they have Which different... Which is why we have such a hard time maternity leave yeah. laws and, and any kind of resources that help support parenting in general, but right. definitely support the single mother. In the hunter-gatherer world, responsibilities, and I think this is what you know scientists have been saying anyway all along, responsibilities get divided along the lines of who's r who is there and capable of providing for the infant's needs immediately, and nursing, of course, is the primary need for an infant in the wild, but even in the human species. But what's interesting in the human species is that not every woman nurses, or we can now pump, so men can be that sole provider. They can bond instantaneously with that child. And I wonder, though, still how many men take on that role. Even when men hold the baby, when it comes out in the hospital, and even if they bottle feed or bottle feed breast milk to the baby, I wonder still, though, why so much of the responsibility still falls on the female even in those cases? Or is there a correlation between those two things? In my experience, I tried really hard to make that option available for the father to do, like to, I pumped for a little while and tried to uh, make bottle feeding accessible to him. But the bonding was very different. I was immediately bonded to that baby, attentive to the needs. It wasn't as if he wasn't attentive, but it definitely wasn't nowhere near the same as mine. You know, he wouldn't even wake up when the baby cried at night, as, whereas I would, could barely even keep my sleep. I had one eye open and one eye on the pillow. So it's just interesting to me to, to think about and wonder, where's that disconnect with the, the males? And, and that disconnect is at the heart of why so many females take on all the responsibility versus the males, I think. Sure. I mean, it's, it's very, it's multifaceted. And she does speak about that. You know, she speaks about breastfeeding in particular and um, how the child, the baby likes to be close to the, the mother's heart. There's a special bonding that happens, breastfeeding and listening and connecting with the mother in that way. Of course, there's going to be a bond that's drastically different than with the father. Among all the hormones that are shared, among being in the womb for nine months, among so many things. I mean, she definitely talks about when given the opportunity, if there's an absent mother, even in primates, male primates have been known to step up and father 
the child. Right. But it takes the absence of the mother to yeah. do that. Or even um, other females will take on responsibility. And in fact, we can start talking about breastfeeding and wet nursing because in the primates, uh, an infant might nurse on several different females within a community. And we have a history of wet nursing that's really fascinating. We know very little about, I think, broadly speaking, our culture knows very little about. You know, I really want to make a connection with wet nursing that I was thinking about this morning. And alpha females and control. So males have a motivation of status. Females have a slightly different motivation. There's still power issues and control issues with other females, but it's less about status. It's more about resourcing the young. And so in primates, alpha females will kill off the offspring of other female. Also, the wet nursing seen in humans, where alpha females, elite females, will hire lower class females to wet nurse. What happens when females are nursing? They're less likely to get pregnant. In a sense, this is a way for humans, alpha females, to control the reproduction of lower caste, lower class females. Just like in primates, where alpha primates, alpha female primates, will kill off offspring. And also, there's a fascinating thing where some of the primates, the female primates, the other females in the community will stop ovulating to help out the alpha female and her offspring. You know, so this is a way that women control. Men control in a different way, males control in a different way, but women control in this way. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, wet nursing, in a sense, is a way for alpha females to control reproduction of lower class females. Whether it's conscious or not, it's a way of control. That's a fascinating look at women having agency. She uses the word entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. They certainly do control resources, and there's definitely a class hierarchy involved, both in the primates and in the human species when it comes to wet nursing. I'm fascinated by the, the whole wet nursing thing. I want to know more about it. I know very little about it, but I do think it is incredibly interesting to look at that whole industry. I'll call it an industry because it did involve so much exchange and um, managerialness between amongst women. It was controlled by women though. It was an all female industry. Was it all good? Uh, something just being controlled by all females, does that mean that it's automatically a good thing? Well, this that is there are no problems or issues? Because I guess some of the issues are still there, though. Underlining that, underlying all of that is still class, class hierarchy, uh, still a division in income and wealth and, and race and resources. So you still have wealthy women outsourcing their babies getting even having them come in and living in their homes with higher success rates for 
living than the lower class women who had to then resource their babies because it was the the lower class women were resourcing their babies because they couldn't always bring their babies into the home with the wealthier women and breastfeed both their babies and the wealthier women's babies. So they were just going further down to poorer women. And um, so it provides an economy, right? Women are getting paid. In fact, at some point, laws start becoming enacted in order to unify and protect women in this industry. So it is an industry, an economy. Women are getting paid. Women are having control. But interestingly, women aren't nursing their own babies. It's fascinating. Yeah. And this is what Hardy's talking about in that women are part of, if not more, part of the evolution of mankind. In that there is a lot of agency in choice and direction and control that we're not seeing. Once you start scratching the surface, you realize, oh my gosh, women are actually making more decisions than we think about the future of their offspring. The industry, right. wet nursing, is no longer <laughs> acceptable. It's no longer appropriate. Right. That has taken power away from women. Right. Yes, right? it has. And now we've had that whole industry almost forgotten. You know, it's been sort of stripped from history, at least mainstream history at any rate. And we've sort of forgotten that we had agency in that industry. And now wet nursing is seen as taboo and women are still, I mean, breastfeeding is only in the last couple decades gotten back on board in the era where it was all bottle fed babies and formula fed babies. We've, when we lost that community of wet nursing, we lost the idea that other women are helping and supporting other women. Now women are sitting in their offices with breast pumps in, during their one-hour break and rushing breast milk home to their nannies or their husbands or whatever if they're working. So it's a totally different paradigm. We're still we're doing it on our own, and we've lost the agency in that. Yeah. We, it seems like agency because we are telling ourselves we're doing it all. I have control over my profession. I can be a mother. I can do it all, but I'm doing it all by myself, and I'm exhausting myself, and I'm making myself sick as I'm doing it. So there's something lost there. Motherhood has had a bad rep for many years, especially in second wave feminism. I mean, women began to reject motherhood. It wasn't cool to be a mother. It was cool to be a professional of some kind, an academic or whatever. So at some point, we started to place more emphasis on those areas and less emphasis on motherhood. And so women then had to apologize or, you know, if you ask a woman who's a stay-at-home mom, there's always this sort of uh, tone in her voice, oh, yeah, I'm just a stay at there's the just, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. And so we've devalued motherhood. And as we've devalued motherhood, we have devalued the resources that it takes in order to be good mothers. And until we get that back, until we have full agency across the board, full agency in careers and professions, in science and medicine and all those different areas that we want to have agency in and put motherhood back on the table as something that's incredibly important and incredibly valuable, will we get those resources? We have to get those resources back. We have to prioritize value motherhood the way that it needs to be valued.
Amen, sister. And hopefully with that, <laughs> we will start to understand that those resources, a part of those resources is community. Yeah. And we will build more communities and stop privatizing our parenting. Let's start. Let's get started. Lee. Yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> Revolution. Revolution. And this is something, you know, I was talking to a friend about. I said, you know, I'd love, I'd love to get my PhD in feminist studies. And she says to me, you know, and she's 55. She says, so many feminists went into academia thinking they could make a change. There's less being done on the ground. There's more being done in academic institutions. When are changes going to start happening? We need some serious activism. Enough with you know, our, our noses and books studying feminist theory. When are things actually going to change? And who's actually on the ground leading those changes, leading that charge? And th there's a good point there. Yeah. There's a good point. And then I wonder, OK, with what's going on politically with this threat to reverse Roe v. Wade, is this what it's going to take, just like Vietnam and the draft? Is this what it's going to take to finally mobilize women to say enough is enough? We're going to do something about this? Well, I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope it doesn't come <laughs> to that. But maybe. I mean, I think that uh, we're already seeing that. Women are becoming more mobilized and uh, because our rights are being threatened. I think we don't, we, we can definitely, it's easy to be complacent when our rights aren't being threatened. And over the years, as we've been complacent, I think we've forgotten so much of our history, so much of where we've come from, and so much of the fights that we fought. Um, we've taken things for granted. We, you know, there's so many connections that have been severed for us that we just don't see clearly the big picture. And really, this is the purpose of our book club, and this is the purpose of our podcast. Right. It's to, to start to rebuild that big picture for us, because we're all so blind, unfortunately. I mean, I'm speaking for myself personally. I know so little. Right there with you. So how can we wrap this up? Let's just say, overall, what's your biggest takeaway from this book? For me, and we'll talk about this in our podcast about abortion, but for me, because of what I was going through at the time, my biggest takeaway was choice. My biggest takeaway was that it's okay for women to think about their future and the availability of resources to bring a child into this world. And we can choose otherwise. We can choose to say, not now. Wait until I am ready and fully resourced to bring a child into this world. And so for me, it was really important to see that across species, this choice has been made by females forever. We choose whether or not to have children. And it's OK. It's OK that this divine fate, destiny, that we've been, we're pregnant and we must bring this child into the world, it's a myth. No, we must think about what's right for us, our livelihood, and the success of the child. And that includes choice, and that includes reproductive rights for women. 
What about you, Lee? Wow, Amaya, I think you just said everything that I wanted to say. I don't know what else to add to that. I mean, that was my biggest takeaway, too, was choice. If I could rename this book, I would name it Choice. <laughs> Clever. <laughs> a shorter name and a shorter book. It's too. <laughs> but, um, yeah, female choice and reproductive rights that our reproductive rights align with what's happening in nature, that there is nothing unnatural about making these choices. And we need to provide this information and knowledge to women across the board, and we need to provide a support network for choice, whichever way that choice goes, whether it's to not bring the child into the world, then we provide that person, that woman with resources and support. Or if she decides to bring this child into the world, then we provide her with resources and support. So so that wraps up our podcast for now, but we are going to do a second part to this podcast where we discuss in further detail reproductive rights and abortion in the South and what it's like to get one, what it's like to think about getting one, and how that's viewed in the South. So join us next time. If you like us, please subscribe to our podcast and give us some positive feedback. Follow us on Facebook at FemSouth. And for more information, check out our website, FemSouth.com, where you can find the podcasts and our book reviews. Hope to see you there and keep listening. You're on Fem